Well, Matthew's gospel, we are going to continue in Matthew's gospel. We're gonna be in chapter 26. So if you have your Bible, you can turn to to Matthew 26 and we'll read the the passage in just a minute. Matthew chapter 26, and it's gonna be on page 833 if you're using the Pew Bible. And if you don't have a Bible, that Pew Bible is as good as yours. Take it home and use it. Um, That is, we would love for you to have a copy of God's word um, in your home that you can take and read. So that, that is the church's gift to you. But it's gonna be on page 833, and we'll read that in just a second. But before we read it, let me just uh, fill you in on what's, what's gonna be happening in our passage. Uh, there, there are several themes that, that you could trace through this, this scene that we're gonna be looking at, but one theme that is most clear, and I think the most, most important theme for us to get in order to understand what Matthew's doing is the contrast between the two main characters. And the two main characters that are gonna be contrasted are Jesus and Peter, And so this passage, we're gonna see the the contrast between these two men, Jesus and Peter, and the way this contrast is highlighted is by Matthew intertwining two separate trials. Okay, so so there's a, in this passage, there's gonna be two trials. Jesus is on trial, which is gonna be clear. Right, the, the events of Jesus' trial are gonna be evident as he's gonna stand firmly in the face of charges that are brought against him by the, the religious leaders, and he's gonna stand forth as the faithful witness. So that's his trial, but alongside of an intertwined is a second trial, and that's the trial of Peter. Now, although Peter's not in an official courtroom setting, though he isn't accompanied by official charges or, or witnesses, Peter's interactions, which again, they're, they're coinciding with those of Jesus, I think Peter wants us to get the idea that Peter is also on trial. But Peter's trial, and Peter in his trial, unlike Jesus, is gonna cower and recoil in the face of these bystanders. And so Peter is going to be presented as the unfaithful witness, the denier of his Lord. And it's this contrast between the faithful witness and the unfaithful witness, between the king and the disciple, that forms the major theme that runs through the passage. And as we work through these verses, my hope is that we continue to see, as we've seen already throughout these events taking place leading up to the Passion Week, as we've been studying Matthew's Gospel, but we're gonna see that Jesus stands out above all the rest. As we see, Jesus is like none other. There's none like him. He stands out, and, and my hope is that as we see him on, on, on display here again, that we might recognize that he is worthy, not only of our, our consideration, but that he is worthy of our worship as the faithful one. As the chaos of of events leading to the crucifixion continue to to move full speed ahead, Jesus goes along calmly, willingly, sovereignly. Jesus knows that these events, which are gonna culminate in his death, were necessary so that he might bring many sons and daughters, people like you and like me, to glory. And so Jesus goes headlong into suffering because, because it is through his suffering and the resulting resurrection that he can now stand as the one with all authority and power. And so it may be hard to to go through these events, but these events were necessary so that we might reign with him. So if you have your Bibles, you can follow along. I'm gonna begin in verse 57 of Matthew chapter 26, and I'm gonna read through the end of 
chapter 26, which is going to be verse 75. Matthew 26, beginning in verse 57. Here is what Matthew records. Then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had gathered. And Peter was following him at a distance as far as the courtyard of the high priest. And going inside, that's the courtyard, Peter sat with the guards to see the end. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death, but they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. At last two came forward and said, this man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. And the high priest stood up and said, have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the son of God. Jesus said to him, you've said so, but I tell you, from now on you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, he has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? And they answered, he deserves death. Then they spit in his face and struck him. And some slapped him saying, prophesy to us, Christ, who is it that struck you? Verse 69, now Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard and a servant girl came up to him and said, you also were with Jesus the Galilean. But he denied it before them all saying, I do not know what you mean. And when he went out to the entrance, another girl saw him and she said to the bystanders, this man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again, he denied it with an oath. I do not know the man. After a little while, the bystanders came up, to, came up and said to Peter, certainly you too are one of them for your accent betrays you. Then he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man. And immediately the rooster crowed. And then Peter remembered the sayings of Jesus that before the rooster crowed, you will deny me three times. And Peter went out and wept bitterly. Let, let me pray for us. Lord, this is, this is a, a scene involving a lot of moving parts. Lord, I pray that your word would do all that you intend for it to do. Would it accomplish it, accomplish the purposes that you have for it in our lives in this very day and time? We trust you as the sovereign Lord to do all that you intend through your powerful word and through the working of your spirit who you have freely given to your people. So would you help us in this time? It's in Jesus' name I pray, amen. Well, we're gonna work through this and, and the, the, the scene, there are a lot of verses, but, but it's pretty easy to work through. So, so there's three sections that, that I'm gonna walk us through. First is the setting, which kind of sets the scene there, 57 and 58. Then we'll, we'll move secondly to Jesus on trial or the, the trial of Jesus, verses 59 through 68. And then finally, the third point is Peter on trial where there's a transition, verse 69, and the rest of the passage is the trial of Peter outside. 
And so those are kind of our, our three verses where we're gonna see the, the, the king on trial and his disciple also on trial. So, so let's start there, verses 57 and 58. We see the trial. So verse 57 picks up, those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, who was the high priest. And so we learn that the, 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 the people who had arrested Jesus take him to the high priest, and we learn that there with the high priest, the scribes and elders had gathered. And so last week we saw Judas, one of the 12, had, had led a great crowd from the chief, chief priests, the elders of the people who had been commissioned in order to arrest Jesus. And we saw that Judas betrayed the Lord, and then all the disciples abandoned him. They all fled, which now... Right? Remember, they all said, we're not gonna flee. We're gonna die with you, Jesus. Even if we have to die, we're, we're, not, gonna, we're not gonna flee. We're not gonna deny you. They all did, as Jesus said, and they all fled. Jesus here comes and is arrested and is now taken back to the place where the, 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 the arrest squad left from and now they're bringing him back. This is clearly a premeditated trial. And so Peter, so Jesus is on his way back to, to this official trial, but look there at verse 58. This is where I think we have these two trials. I think Matthew is doing something very intentional. In verse 58, he says, and Peter was following him at a distance, as far as the courtyard of the high priest. So he, he follows at a distance, and then he goes into this courtyard, which had been right outside of the place where Jesus was on trial. And so Peter is, is following along at a distance. So he's not going too close. It's, it's as though he doesn't want to be noticed. He's, he's in the shadows. In fact, one, one commentator is very gracious in describing Peter. And he says, Peter, in this, in this situation, is midway between courage and cowardice. That he's kind of wanting to be there, but kind of not. That, that's a gracious understanding of this. I'm much less impressed I see Peter like that, that, that slimy scoundrel named Gollum who is following the Fellowship of the Ring. If you, if you have the Lord of the Rings, Gollum is this evil character and, and he's following the Fellowship of the Ring because he wants the ring and he's following at a distance but he's hiding because he doesn't want to get seen and caught. He wants to see what's going to happen but, but he is afraid to be out in the open so he always hides. I think that's Peter. I think it's, he's more coward than courageous. But Matthew tells us Peter follows as far as he can and then he stops in the courtyard of the high priest. And going inside, he sat down with the guards, and Matthew says that he sat down to see the end. What an indictment against Peter. Peter's not, not there to see how Jesus is going to escape. He, he isn't there to, to pull out his sword again and attempt to free Jesus. He, he's not going to go down in flames, as it were, like freeing his Messiah, his, his Lord. No, Matthew says that Peter sat down to see the end. In other words, this is how it's all gonna end. I'm at least gonna see how this ends. What a sad state of things for Peter the rock here. And so Peter, it seems to me that Matthew has picked up on the activity of Peter and his resting place outside in order to now say, okay, well, let's, let's zoom back in on inside, which is what he picks up in verse 57, that Jesus is led to Caiaphas, the high priest, and the scribes who had gathered together. Is all part of the plan. These opponents of Jesus had commissioned the temple guards or the police of the day and charged them, go arrest this one and bring him back. And, and we will be waiting for you when you get back. And if you remember, this, these events are taking place in near the middle of the night. And there are a lot, of, a lot of things that could be said about what is going on, but one of those is not that this, that this, this trial is proceeding normally. There's nothing normal about what's going on here. It just shows the, that what, what these leaders are willing to do to, to capture and destroy Jesus. They arrest him in the middle of the night. 
when, when he said, I'm available, I've been available all days and you come out at night as against a robber. And so there's this trial, this gathering of the Sanhedrin in the middle of the night to, to put on this trial. And so they, they, they're putting Jesus on trial because they are set on destroying him. They'll do whatever it takes to eliminate this man. And so we see Jesus on trial. Look, look here at the, the, the pick up, picking up of the trial of Jesus beginning there in verse 59. So the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death. But they found none. Let that settle in. They, they're, they're calling false witnesses. They find none though many false witnesses came forward. So, so the abnormality of the scene continues to grow. The chief priests and the whole council, they're seeking false testimony. That's not how a trial works. You don't seek false testimony. They don't care about the truth, these, these, these people organizing, these religious leaders. There's nothing about this trial that is seeking to be just or fair. There's no innocent until proven guilty. It's more like guilty whether proven or not. Right? They have the verdict, they've already declared the, the verdict on this man, and they are trying to fit the pieces in so they can carry out the verdict they've already decided upon. So they're seeking false testimony, and they found none, though many came forward. Again, gathered in the cover of darkness, you have this group of religious leaders attempting to frame or falsely accuse, in, uh, falsely accuse an innocent man, and to do so, they call forth many witnesses, and so I don't think that they're asking these witnesses to, to lie. I don't think they're forcing them to lie. They're saying, hey, what have you heard? And let's see if, if any of the things that have been said or heard by this teacher we can use to, 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 to pit against each other as false testimony. We just want anything to take this man down. And there were no two witnesses that agreed. And so they're, they're looking for two witnesses because though they're, they're Jewish leaders, they cannot kill someone. They need the Romans to do that. So, so if, they can, if they can build a charge on the evidence of, of two or more witnesses that, that, that can be charged legitimately against this man, then they can pass him off to Rome and they will let Rome do the killing that they want done. So, so they're seeking evidence and they, they, they want to put him to death and that requires having a uni, the unanimous evidence of at least two witnesses. So that's all they're looking for is two of them. And so this long line of witnesses coming and testifying, but nothing sticks. No two witnesses offer charges that are strong enough to condemn him but they want him condemned because they want him dead. That's the very purpose of this. They're seeking false testimony to put him to death. And finally, Matthew tells us that two witnesses came forward with a charge. So here's two witnesses who make the same charge, verse 60 into 61. At last, two came forward, verse 61, and they said, this man said, in other words, we heard him say, quote, I'm able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. Now, as we've been going through Matthew's gospel, we know that Jesus said a lot about the temple over these past several chapters. He didn't speak highly of the temple. He did speak about its fall, about its destruction, but he certainly had never made these statements. These words cannot be found in the teachings of Jesus. This is a continuation of the false witnesses, but they come forward because they knew he'd said something about the temple. Remember, Jesus never said, I'm able to destroy you. Go back to John chapter two. He said, you destroy this temple and I will raise it up in three days, but he never claimed to destroy the temple, that, that's where they took a saying out of context and twisted it to fit what they wanted it to, to fit. But, it, but if this is true, if these two witnesses co cooperate one another, then that is enough. If Jesus had threatened to destroy a sacred place like the temple, right, that would be enough to charge him. This, this is a sacred place. In the Romans would recognize the sacredness of, of, of worship spaces, of sacred spaces. And if someone comes to, to, up, to, to uproot that or to destroy that, that would be enough. 
So then verse two, after these two charges come and, and seem to, to meet, Caiaphas, as, as is required by a trial, that the, the one, the, the defendant has to be able to give, a, give an answer. And so Caiaphas stands up and asks Jesus, have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? In other words, you know what this means. If, if this is true, Jesus, if what they're saying is true, you will be condemned. What do you have to say for yourself? The high priest gives Jesus a chance to respond to these charges. Perhaps he thinks Jesus will say something to, to solidify the charge, to, to make it even more uh, of, of an indictment against himself. Maybe he'll confirm what he's being charged with. But, but as we watch this scene unfold, as we see and we hear these charges, false witnesses have come. And here come two that make a, a statement that, that would rightly condemn him. We think, okay, now's the time for Jesus to speak up. Surely now, he, he knows these are false witnesses. He knows that his words are being twisted. Now is the time for him to speak. Now is a chance for him to deny the charges and get off the hook. But verse 63, but Jesus remained silent. Jesus refuses to defend himself. I mean, Jesus knows the hearts and intentions of, of these witnesses. He knows the hearts and intentions of the men that have brought him on trial. He knew that their sole desire was to destroy him. He knew that, that this trial was, was heading towards an innocent man being condemned as guilty. He knows what's happening. He know, he's not surprised. He's not caught off guard. His hands aren't tied. He knows, and yet he remained silent. And Matthew wants us to get this picture because this one, oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. The suffering servant, the Isaiah 53, fulfillment in the one suffering at the hands of, of sinful men, he refuses and maintains his silence as a sheep led to the slaughter. This is the Messiah walking the road to Calvary. And his silence is, is too much for the high priest. It's too much for Caiaphas. Caiaphas must hear from Jesus. Jesus doesn't, doesn't condemn himself, doesn't indict himself with, with further speaking, but, but he, doesn't, he doesn't defend himself. And so Caiaphas, there at the end of verse, verse 63, I think Caiaphas is like, okay, this is enough of these games. That, 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 that's, that's, that's how I understand what's happening here. The high priest says to him, you won't say anything? I ask you a question, you're not gonna say anything? I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. This is Caiaphas. He's putting the, the Son of God, the Messiah, the Lord himself, under oath. That's what he's doing here. I adjure you. In the name of God, you better answer my question. That, that's what's happening here. This I adjure you, this is a, a rare but a formal expression that, that's invoking the name of God in order to compel a true answer. By God, tell the truth, is what he's saying. And this, as one commentator noted, is the climax of the trial, right? This is the, the, the intentional pause in the scene. What's gonna happen? I tell you, you have the high priest who is adjuring, who's putting under oath this defendant who has refused to speak. Push has come to shove, and Caiaphas is done playing games. He wants to know, he wants to hear directly from the mouth of Jesus, are you the Christ? And it's now, at this point, knowing the end is at hand, 
that Jesus is going to answer the question. And not only is Jesus going to answer the question as straightforwardly as it was asked, but he's going to answer the question specifically because now is the time. The time has come. There's no more secrecy surrounding the identity of the one who's before them. There's no reason for him to to speak in a parable or to speak in veiled language. Now it's out in the open. Now's the time for the Messiah to reveal himself and to suffer and die at the hands of evil men, which he has predicted time and time again leading up to this point. Thus, when asked point blank by the high priest whether or not he was the Christ, Jesus broke his silence. Verse 64, Jesus said to him, you have said so. Which is interesting, if you remember back when Judas in the upper room they're asking, Master, are we going to betray? Am I the one? And when Judah says, Am I the one, teacher? Same exact phrase, you have said so. And while Jesus does not right say, Yes, what you've said is right, he's, he's implied the, the exact same. There's nothing unclear about this response. Caiaphas knows what he's asking. Everyone there knows what is being asked when they say, Are you the Christ, the Son of God? And Jesus knows the question. And the truth is, the reality of the identity of the man on trial is that he is the Christ. Jesus says, You've said it. You know it. And so, in a scene that's filled with false witnesses and, and deception and injustice, here's the first person telling the truth. And Jesus tells the truth. He doesn't shrink back from declaring to these men what he's been declaring to those who would listen throughout his entire ministry. He's told his disciples, he told others that he's healed. And at this point, it's, it's tell it from the mountaintops. The secret is over. No more hiddenness. The time has come, and Jesus knows he's headed towards the cross. And so he says, You're right. I, you've said so. I am the Christ. What's fascinating, and, and very much like Jesus, that's not where he stops, is it? That's not all he says. I mean, that's enough. That's enough. He's affirmed the question and he's validated the charge. And what he said is true. But it's not all he says because these men, their understanding of the Messiah is not all there is about the Messiah. So he continues because there's more to his identity than what they think about as the Messiah. One commentator explains it this way. The understanding of the high priest of the Messiah and the Son of God is fundamentally inadequate. It's incomplete. Jesus indeed is the Messiah and so must answer affirmatively, but he's not quite the Messiah that Caiaphas has in mind. So he must answer cautiously with some explanation. So he's gonna gonna further explain what he means when he says, I'm the Christ. So he continues, you've said so, but I tell you from now on, you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. So that's his statement. Verse 65, notice the response of the high priest. High priest doesn't say, okay, that's what I thought. He's confirmed it, now, now we can move forward. No, the high priest, standing up, tears his robes and said, he has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses? Send everyone home. We have all we need right here. You have heard it. So so what Jesus says in that simple explanation sends Caiaphas off his rocker, as it were. And so Jesus, in affirming that the question that Caiaphas gave, gave him all he needed, what Jesus does here is to give abundantly more than Caiaphas could have ever thought or imagined. 
He gives him all the evidence he'll need. So what is it, we have to ask ourselves, what is it that Jesus said that, that, had, that, that elicited such a response from the high priest? What is it about the, the explanation that Jesus gives that, that creates or, or causes such an emotional response? What Jesus is doing here in this, this simple sentence, this simple explanation, is he's taking two well-known Old Testament passages and he's bringing them together in, in, in himself and his identity as the one who fulfills both of these in one. So, so the first Old Testament passage that he brings together is Psalm 110, verse one. You can write these down. We're not, we're not gonna go into depth here, but you can go, go back and read these. But first one is Psalm 110, verse one. The second is Daniel 7, verse 13. And so what Jesus does is he brings these two Old Testament verses together and he asserts two things. By, by citing the Psalm 110, he's saying, the son of man as the Messiah, I will be vindicated. Although these, these men are gonna be successful in, in killing him, he wants them to know, I as the, as the Lord's Lord, as David's Lord, will be vindicated. Because Psalm 110, verse one, says this specifically about the Messiah, where David writes, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Right? So, so Jesus is saying, I will be seated at the right hand. I will be David's Lord with all authority and all power. What Jesus says is that as the Messiah, he will be vindicated and seated at the right hand of power. He's claiming that he will, the next time they see him after his, his death and resurrection, the next time they see him will be when he's in the seat of all power. He'll receive the place of highest honor at God's right hand. So that's the first thing. I will be vindicated. I'm the Messiah of one, Psalm 110. They'll be vindicated until my enemies are put under my feet. Second, he mentions the clouds of heaven. Right? That's a, a reference, clear reference to Daniel chapter seven where Daniel has this vision and he, he sees one like the son of man who's coming on the clouds of heaven before the Lord, the ancient of days and is given glory and dominion in an everlasting kingdom. And Jesus in their hearing by saying that he would be seen coming with the clouds of heaven, it's not only asserting he's gonna be vindicated and seated, but also he's asserting that he himself would be granted all power and all authority and will come in the clouds as the supreme eschatological end time judge who would come to judge the earth. Now, that's what he's claiming. You're gonna see me coming in the clouds. And so in this response to the high priest, Jesus is saying, I'm gonna be vindicated and I'm gonna be given glory and dominion and I'm gonna be appointed judge of all. I'm the Messiah, yes, but my kingdom is not gonna be this earthly political kingdom. This world is going to be my kingdom and I'm gonna come with all power and all authority. And so he is the Christ, the Messiah, the sent one, yes, but, but the Messiah was the Lord himself in their midst. And that is not lost on those listening and questioning him. And this reality that, that the Lord, the Messiah, the, the Lord himself in their midst, that tra understanding that's who is there in this trial completely transforms how we understand what's happening here. I mean, think about what's transpiring and what Jesus is saying. He makes this statement as a man who had been deserted by his followers Right, here he is standing powerless, appearing to be powerless before this group of men who are judging him, appearing to be helpless and weak, doesn't even speak. How could this man, they must be asking themselves, 
How could he possibly be the glorious Messiah of the Jewish people? How in the world is this man the Christ? There's no way. This is not the Messiah that they were expecting. And to add insult to injury, Jesus is also claiming that one day when he comes in glory, he's going to judge the very ones who are standing in judgment over him in that room. And they're like, can you believe this guy? He thinks he has power over us? There are no small, these are no small claims being made by Jesus, which helps us understand why, after making the statement, verse 65, the high priest tore his robes and said, this is blasphemy. He is blasphemy, blaspheming. We, we don't need any further witnesses. You have heard his testimony, his blasphemy. In light of this plain and open affirmation of his messiahship, Caiaphas high priest concludes that this man has blasphemed, which is to say, in the eyes of the high priest, this mere man has infringed upon God's majesty. He's diminished his honor because he's claimed to be him. In Caiaphas's eyes, Jesus has committed blasphemy and is worthy of the penalty that the whole council has been seeking this whole time. That they've gotten more than they could have asked for. And it didn't, it didn't take false witnesses. It was Jesus himself willingly, knowingly confessing the truth about his identity. And now the trial can move forward speedily. Which is why verse 66, Caiaphas asked those who've gathered, what's your judgment? He deserves death. No other option. They've, they've heard what he said. They understand what he's saying. He deserves death. Verse 67, then they spit in his face and they struck him. Some slapped him, saying, prophesy to us, Christ, who, who struck you? I mean, these men don't consider even for a second the possibility that Jesus could be telling the truth. Do you realize that? The verdict's made up. They're not here listening. Oh, that's an interesting claim. Well, let's hear the witnesses. What did he say again? How, how can we fix it? They, they don't have an ear to hear. They have no interest in what he said. Their minds were made up long before they had Jesus arrested and brought before them. And they have their fun with Jesus, spitting in his face and striking him, asking him mockingly, since you're the Christ, tell us, who, who is it? One gospel writer records they, they blindfold him. And these men most likely are carrying on with these antics because by doing so, they only grow more and more convinced that this man standing before them could not possibly be the Messiah. The Messiah wouldn't take this. And so they further convince themselves that it is not true what he says. And so we come to the end of this section we encounter this despicable treatment of Jesus the Christ by the religious leaders. And we just, I, just, I just want to tell you and encourage you that this is, a, this is an ugly picture, isn't it? It's an ugly picture. But we must not forget that Jesus gave his life as a ransom for many, even his enemies. Right? He suffers and goes to the cross in order to save sinners from their sin. The bad guys aren't primarily the religious leaders are Caiaphas. His enemies are all who do not worship and love him as they were created to do, and that's you and me. And yet, he was despised, rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with gift. He was grief, he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb led to the slaughter, like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. This is our Messiah going willingly to the cross. Jesus confesses the truth. He doesn't waver. He answers. And he's handed over to the guards. And even so, he remains in control. And the application for here is, we've seen through this gospel, is, is Jesus makes predictions that come to pass. I mean, striking the shepherd and, and the, the sheep flee. That happened. 
I'm going to, to Jerusalem and I'm going to be handed over into, sin, into the hands of sinful men. That's going to happen. He's going to be crucified. He's going to be raised. All his predictions are coming to pass. But what I want to focus on specifically here is like every other promise in the gospel of, in, in, the, in the gospel concerning what Jesus says about what's going to happen, the one specific one here is that he is coming back with all authority to judge. And I don't want you to miss that. This is the good news for the, the world-worn Christian. If your faith is in Christ, this is good news. He's coming back. For, for the Christian who's, who's struggling under the weight of this world, the one who's been neglected or abused or mistreated or abandoned and, and all the others who suffers greatly in this fallen world, the perspective of the return of Christ is a great hope. He's coming back. It's not gonna last forever. That This suffering is momentary. It's a light affliction compared to the weight of glory that will come when he returns. And so for the Christian, he's coming back for us. He's bringing relief. He's coming to wipe away tears. He's coming to undo all the wrong that's been done. He's bringing justice. This is good news for the Christian. And so Christian, we ought to long for his return. It's coming. But his, his second coming isn't good news for everyone here because if you're here and you're not a Christian, maybe, maybe you couldn't care less about his second coming. The reality of his return is terrible news for you. It's going to happen. Jesus said, I'm coming back with on the clouds. And so if your faith is not in Jesus, if your trust is not in him, the, the, the prospect of his return is bad news for you whether you recognize it or not. Because his return means judgment of his enemies. His enemies will be put under his feet. That means defeated completely. All of his enemies. And so if you're not with Christ, if you're not in Christ, if your faith is not in him, then you are against him. And so my call to you is, is in light of his second coming, trust in Christ. Love Christ. Treasure Christ. Put your faith in him. Because if you don't, his return will bring judgment and condemnation for you. But the good news that comes after this bad news is that today, today, Jesus has not come back. He tarries still. That day is coming, but until that day comes, you can switch sides. You can go from enemy to friend today. You can be transferred from condemned to accepted, from dominion of darkness to kingdom of the sun. Today, while his second coming still tarries, you can know Christ as Lord and Savior. And you can do that now. And so just hear me say that Christ died, he suffered and died, and is coming back to rescue his people. And you can be his people if you trust in him, put your faith in him. And so I would love to talk to you about that afterwards. There are many people here that would love to do the same. But your time is running out because Jesus will not tarry forever. So be warned non-Christian. Let's move on quickly this, this last section here. Peter on trial. So, so that's Jesus' trial. And then we switch. Verse 69, Peter, or Matthew picks up a clear transition. So we move from the official trial to the less official but equally significant trial of Peter. Verse 69, now Peter was sitting outside the courtyard and a servant girl came up to him and said, you also were with Jesus the Galilean. And so here, Peter's trial, there are three separate escalating denials. So the first one, Peter is a, a, approached by a servant girl, not the high priest, not a guard, not, not a soldier, but a servant girl. 
No offense, ladies or, or young ladies, but, but this is someone who would scare no one in this world. She's a servant girl. And so she comes and asks the very specific question whether or not Peter was with Jesus. You're with him, weren't you? And Peter says, verse 70, he denied it before them all. And so he's in the courtyard with others around and he says, I don't know what you mean. I don't know what you mean. The response, which ought to be clear with us, is a denial. Man, he's trying to skirt around. There's nothing confusing about this question. You're with him, weren't you? Well, I, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't know what you mean. It's a simple question. And Peter plays the fool and refuses to answer. Denial one, verse 70. Next, denial two, verse 71. Fast forward a little bit. And now he, he goes out to the entrance. He wants to get away from that servant girl. Doesn't want to ask any more questions. He's going to leave. At the entrance, another servant girl saw him and she said to the bystanders, so now she's not talking directly to Peter, she's talking to those around him, this man was with Jesus of Nazareth. A different girl, same, same status in culture and society, another servant girl, and she says, not directly to Peter, but those around, this guy was with him. Which again, very plain statement. In this case, a very true statement. She's not saying anything malicious, she's just saying this is what's true, Right? Verse 72, and again, he denied it with an oath. I do not know the man. And so so you have, there's an escalation. I, I don't understand what you're talking about. Second time, I don't know him. Peter, Peter appears to be getting impatient, probably feels the, the temperature rising. So he answers, Matthew says, with an oath, which is simply Matthew saying he's doubling down. He's doubling down. There's no going back. He's, he's, he's all in this line of reasoning or this, this lie I mean, I thought about growing up, I'm not condoning this, but, but when we wanted to convince someone we were telling the truth, we would say, cross my heart, hope to die. Stick a needle in my eye. Which, who, who thought of that? But the point is, I'm not telling the truth, but I really, really, really want you to believe me. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna say, I'm gonna die. You can kill me if I'm lying. As if that makes the truth more true or the, the falsehood more true. That that's, that's Peter taking an oath I, I, I swear to God I'm not doing this. I don't know the man. That, that's, that's what's happening here. And so here we see Peter again, second denial. I don't know him with as much authority as, as he can muster. I don't know the man. Remember, this is, the background here is early in this chapter. This is the Peter back in verse 35. In the comfort of the upper room, even if I must, even if I must die with you, Jesus, I will not deny you. Right, so Peter had pledged his allegiance to Jesus and Jesus said, you're, you're gonna deny me three times tonight before the rooster crows. Upon which hearing that, Peter says, no, no way. I'm gonna die before I deny you. And that's the same Peter who now, denial number two, I don't know him. Which leads to the final denial, verse 73. After a little while, the bystanders came up. So now that it's, I say it's escalating. So now there's bystanders here. So it was a servant girl to Peter, just two of them, then a servant girl to the bystanders. Now it's the bystanders themselves. The group comes up right? It's escalating. They come up and they say to Peter, certainly you two are one of them for your accent betrays you. Then he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man. And so we reach this third and final denial. And again, this escalation, this, this third episode, the final denial, the, the, the source of it is the accent of Peter. Apparently there's something about the way that people from Galilee spoke that, that differentiated them from those who were around Jerusalem. So they say, your accent betrays you. We can tell you're from Galilee. You must be one that was with him. And so they continue to press this relationship between Peter and the man on trial. And again, Peter refuses to acknowledge this relationship. 
In fact, like the second denial, he not only denies a relationship, but he swears, he invokes a curse upon himself if he's lying. I mean, that's what he's doing. He's saying, I, God curse me if I'm not telling the truth. I don't know the man. Peter, again, when given the chance, he's given a chance to stand with Christ, not once, not twice, but three times, and he fails and fails and fails. And the more likely to others that, that he is lying, the more emphatic Peter becomes in attempting to dupe the crowd, which is a well-known tactic of flagrant liars, what one commentator said. Well, after this third denial, Matthew says, and immediately, immediately the rooster crowed, which called to mind the prophecy of Jesus back in verse 34, Peter remembered the saying of Jesus, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Uh, I mean, can you imagine Peter? Peter remembered. He had done exactly as Jesus had predicted, and the rooster crow awakens him to that reality. Peter, though he promised to stand, even if it meant death, had not only had not only not stood with Jesus, but he'd refused any connection with him. And upon hearing the rooster crow, Peter certainly realized himself to be guilty. I, I have done what I said I wouldn't do. The Lord's words have been proved true. I am guilty. No false witness is needed. Peter had testified against himself, not once, not twice, but three times, three witnesses against himself. And the weight of that guilt rushed upon Peter. And we see that the, the head disciple, the rock, in this case, the unfaithful rock who's reached rock bottom and immediately does the only thing he can do. What a sentence. And he went out and wept bitterly. Which leads to the final point of application here, which is, which is this. And this is the main theme. We see the contrast. And the, the point of the contrast is the great mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ. This fall of Peter, this threefold denial must not be downplayed. Right? This is utter failure. I mean, Peter failed. He denied the Lord. His pride, his arrogance, his fear, his cowardice, he failed. While his master was being falsely acute inside, he was flailing and floundering like a scared little girl on the outside. He betrayed his master. We shouldn't downplay that. Because it's the more clearly we recognize the massive failure of this disciple, the more clearly we recognize the great mercy of the Messiah. This is, this is the last time Matthew is going to mention Peter by name in his gospel. That's it. Nothing more. The last appearance of, of Peter in Matthew's gospel is he wept bitterly. And if that's all that we had of the gospel of Matthew, if all we had in, of Peter was Matthew's gospel, we might be tempted to think that Peter went the way of Judas. Right? Confronted with guilt and shame and awareness of that, he, that he'd done wrong. But there's more to the story of Peter than what Matthew records. I think Matthew leaves it out because he knows that as he's writing, the people know what happened to Peter because this wasn't the end of Peter. We all know Peter's story. Bitter weeping isn't the end. Unlike Judas, this weeping, this sorrow, it's, it's not worldly sorrow, but it's godly sorrow. It leads Peter to genuine repentance. And so this Peter, this man at his lowest point here at the end of chapter 26 is the Peter in Acts chapter two who's gonna stand up having received the Holy Spirit and proclaim, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified with power and authority. Peter would be restored and would serve as a pillar of the church. And the point to make is that Peter's failure, though utter, doesn't disqualify him. Peter was, was repentant. Peter, if we could ask him in this scene, he hated what he had done. 
He knew the evil of his ways. And his only hope was the mercy of the one on trial in the court. His sin and failure wasn't the last word because his sin and failure found sufficient grace and mercy in the person and work of Jesus Christ. I mean, think of how encouraging it would have been as the first readers of Matthew's gospel. They know Peter as, as the preacher or as the apostle, the power apostle in Jerusalem. And, and they read this account and they think even the most respected leader of the church is totally dependent, dependent upon the merciful forgiveness of Jesus. I mean, if Peter could fail this badly and still be used and have a place in God's plan, then there's hope for me. In this way, Jesus is magnified and all others, even such a famous leader as Peter, are placed on the level of mere human disciples, which is encouragement for us this morning. There's merciful forgiveness in Christ. Your sin, your failure, they're no match for the grace that flows from Christ. And so believer, because of our sin, we, we weep. We ought to weep over our sin. We repent. We are filled with sorrow for our sin against our Savior, but we don't stay there. We take our sin and our weakness and our need, we take them to the Lord Jesus Christ, to the one who has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. We take our sin to the one who was pierced for our transgressions and was, was crushed for our iniquities. We, we take our sins to the, to the one whose chastisement has brought us peace and the one whose wounds by which we are healed the one we have all betrayed and from whom we have all strayed, and yet he's the one upon whom the Lord has laid the iniquity of us all. We look to Christ and his death on our behalf with our sin. That's what Christians do.